This is a crowd podcast. I'm Sam Warburton and you're listening to Captains, the leadership podcast where I chat with big name guests about how to build winning teams. This episode, I'm joined by the writer and political strategist, Alistair Campbell. The infamous occasion on the Lions tour when Clive Woodward asked me to talk to the team. Some of them were absolutely furious. Which of these two statements defines you more? I love winning or I hate losing. Hi everyone, thanks again for listening to Captains. Today we are leaving the sporting field and looking at leaders from the political world with a great guest. Alistair Campbell is the co-host of the Rest is Politics podcast. He is also a Sunday Times best-selling author, but is probably best known for his time as Tony Blair's spokesman, press secretary and director of communications and strategy when Blair was prime minister. As a result, he was involved in many high-profile and high-pressured decisions. This is a two-parter, and in this episode, we will focus on the relationship between sport and politics and Alice's experience of both. We talk about his love of Burnley, and he reveals all about his time working with the British and Irish Lions with Sir Clive Woodward. Some really fascinating stuff there. Funny enough, we both know Andy McCann, the sports psychologist who helped me devise the captain's compass, so we talk about how he helped both of us at various stages of our lives. Enjoy the episode with Alistair Campbell. So Alistair, thanks for coming on. Good to catch up again, actually. And I probably should start off with a congratulations. Uh, I was doing a little bit of reading and I read, and you could tell me if this is right or not, which I, I was mind blown by this, that your podcast, which only started just over a year ago, 60 million downloads. Is that right? Is that right? Did I read that right? I think so, yeah. I mean, I know we had, I think it was seven and a half million the month wow. before Christmas, I think. Yeah, no, it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, I thought you were going to say that you've got the number one podcast in the country and your book went to number one in the first week as well. But. Right, you pit me to that. I was going to say I saw it was the Sunday Times number one bestseller yeah, as well. Yeah. So, yeah, no, there's definitely something going on that people, there seems to be a yearning for political debate and discussion that isn't just the usual sort of, you know, yabu, blah blah I was going to say that because your book, which is, but what, what can I do? And I, I've actually was thinking about this myself. I didn't give much interest to politics when I was in my 20s, maybe because I was so bogged down with playing. That's why I think your timing of your podcast and your book is is so good. Now I'm in my 30s, got a family, life outside of sports, you know, involved in, I say, sort of in inverted commas, like, you know, in business-related type stuff. Now I'm much more interested. So, you know, like the things you're doing has captured the imagination of, of people like me who yeah. might have previously not been too heavily involved did, did you expect it to take off like it did or was it just the perfect storm almost um i didn't expect it to take off like it did no in fact when rory stewart and i started doing the podcast we both sort of said let's give it a few weeks and see whether we enjoy it and see whether actually there's any traction for it um and likewise with the book what i've been amazed by is how many young people are reading it yeah schools and colleges and it's funny that you say the because the first time we ever met was in British and Irish Lions time. And I think that what was interesting to me about that trip, actually, I'd say a good third of the rugby players at that time actually were quite interested in politics. But yeah. we had this thing where it was really funny where Martin Corrie wanted to, be, to form a cabinet. 
And I think he wanted to be Chancellor of the Exchequer and he made Ben Kay Foreign Secretary. <laughs> and Stephen, Stephen Jones, who was one of my favourite people of all time, and he used to come in and say, and he'd say, come on, Alice, tell us, what are we going to talk about today? I want to learn about housing policy. How do you make a housing policy? So it was all sort of, you know, but I think there's, I think people are more interested in politics than they, they realise, but they don't necessarily relate what they see of politics to their own lives. 100%. And Stephen Jones speaks very highly of yourself, actually. You've come up in conversation a few times. I, and I should also mention, which might come of interest to some of the listeners of this podcast, is I ask everybody about their uh, captain's compass, which which I'll explain in, in, a, in a little while. But that was given to me, and I had to design my own one. And going back to a mutual friend, which is how we also yeah. met on a few occasions as well, Andy Absolutely. McCann, who you know well. So you know Andy pretty well. So just thought that the listeners might be interested to hear that, that we both sort of used Andy in a in a professional and as a, you know, he's a great yeah. friend as well. So I thought that was, that was of interest as well. Do you still keep touch with Andy? Yes, I do. And in fact, he is in both, he's in two of my books now. He might be, no, he's in three of my books because he'll be in my diaries. He's in Winners, where you're in as well, because I talk about his relationship with you in that book. And, and, his, and, and also he gave me this amazing presentation about how he, how he, what he did on a given day with Lee Halfpenny. Oh, yeah. Literally practicing a kick in his hotel room and then showing me the video of, of the, a, a, an almost identical moment that they were visualizing in the hotel room when he was just wearing a shirt and a pair of jeans and there wasn't even a ball there. It was amazing. And, but what happened with Andy was, was really interesting because, and he's in the new book, by the way, because... Oh, is he? Yeah, because I've, I've, I've written about how I first got to know him when I was having these really weird... I, don't, I, I, I guess you'd call them panic attacks, but it didn't feel like a panic attack. It was more like an out-of-body experience where... And I was doing it live on television. And I was finding myself just I wasn't there and I was kind of speaking or sometimes I wasn't speaking. And I was just literally sort of like I wasn't like a rabbit trapped in headlights. I just looked weird. And I thought I can't carry on going like this. I've, I've got a friend who's at the time was a professional golfer. And he said, oh, I deal with this guy called Andy McCann. Why don't you go and see him? As I saw Andy. And even as I'm telling you this story, I'm doing something which I learned to do with Andy, which is this thing where when I get he told me that the All Blacks, for example, if they lose concentration, they used to have this thing that they go like that and it centres them. He said, obviously, if you're in an interview and you're starting to feel sort of this anxiety coming up, you can't kind of go like that. It looks a bit weird. We've got to find something that gives you the power of centering yourself back. And I now do this. I just literally oh, really? put my thumbs and my fingers together and I do like that. And whatever circumstances. And so like most people, you go around the place are very, very nice. Right. But every now and again, you'll get somebody who will literally come up in the street and, and have a go. And I just find myself doing this and I start smiling as soon as I'm doing it. And it's sort of, and then they're like, you know, what are you laughing at me? I said, no, I'm just smiling. I'm sort of just, you know, having a nice day kind of thing. And it just calms me right down. So that's how I got to know Andy. And then, yeah, I've stayed in touch with him. And the reason he's in this book is because of that. But I got a message from him the other day. He's read the book and I've got a chapter in there called Acquire Perseverance, which is about... How do you make the? How do you get perseverance and resilience and bring them together? And Andy sent me a message. He said, "I can't, I can't believe that you've invented this word that basically sums up what I've been teaching people for the last, you know, the rest of my life." Uh, he said, "Perseverance is kind of what I, what I try and get into people." So, yeah, he's a great guy. 
Love that. No, we've both benefited from it massively. Actually, it's weird you say that because you, you were touching your, your sort of fingers together when you were saying what you do. I do this thing, and it's not through Andy. I just kind of... When I find I'm getting distracted or I need to focus on something, this is going to make me sound really weird now. I do the same thing where I touch my fingers on my thumb, but I go across each four fingers. Okay, yeah. Oh, it sounds really weird. And I have to give no. equal pressure to each one. And if I don't, I have to go back to level it out. And it sounds daft, but then once I've done it for like, say, 10, 20 seconds, I've kind of, you've kind of forgotten what you've, you've refocused because it just gives you something to focus on. It's a really strange thing I do. You said that. I've never said that publicly. It's weird. <laughs> but did you, when you were playing though, because I mean, one of the things, it must be really hard over the length of an entire test match or a big game that you're playing in to keep your levels of concentration. Did you have techniques and tactics to say, I'm, I'm slightly losing the place here. I've got to get myself back into that zone. Did you have things for that? Uh, sure, Andy, Andy's coming up a lot already. Um, and yeah, well, Andy again, I'd remember, like, he would teach me like breathing techniques. So I remember in the change room thinking, like say you were talking about being a bit anxious. I used to, and it's kind of, when you breathe in, people breathe in and think they have to inflate their chest. But when you breathe yeah. in, Andy would coach me to breathe in and inflate my stomach. So it, it yeah. gives you that deep breath. So, and I'd remember inflating in, having that deep breath. So I force my stomach out as I breathe in and I'd visualize green air coming into the lungs, flooding my lungs, going, th- and cause I, I quite like to understand the science of it going through into my bloodstream that green would then just infiltrate around my body and then when I exhaled it was just the red would just be then coming out of the body then I'd do that three four times and then I'd be poor yeah I was much more centered then you know so, yeah. so and when you're in the you know when you're in the change room maybe you've got two minutes to get your kit on before you're getting the lads together you're getting your jersey on rather you haven't got much time so you've got to kind of try and master this within maybe 20 seconds you know so mm. yeah funny you, you you do it on like a live tv sense mine would be you know, in that moments before you're running out onto the pitch. But yeah, similar techniques. That thing about breathing, though, is interesting because I, I was, um, Brian Cox, the actor, he had a birthday party the other day, there were loads of actors there. And there's a woman who we were talking, because I get quite bad asthma and I get bad hay fever in the summer. And I was telling her I was having real difficulty breathing. And she said to me, breathe in. So I, I, I went like that. And she said, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Breathe, and she said, "This is what actors do. You have to breathe out, but your stomach has to go out as you breathe in." And do you know what? Since I've, since you told me that I've been doing it, it's been really helpful. It does feel a lot deeper, doesn't it? You don't realise, but it does feel it's a lot deeper breath when you do that. You know, it's yeah, got a much stronger sort of inhale. Yeah. So, we will start off with a bit of leadership in sport. Big Bernie fan, and you're back in the mm. Premier League. I've always yeah. admired. So, just on a bit of fun, how do you? How do you? I bet you must love having Vincent Company. What do you like about Vincent Company? He's been a real asset since he's been been at Burnley, isn't he? Well, I I, had, I interviewed him for Sky Sports, and it was really interesting because um, I did the interview up at Burnley. Uh, we'd had, a, and it was quite a long interview. And it's interesting. You'll have done loads of these sports interviews and Sky Sports and all that stuff. And it was a three-camera interview. And at the end of it, this one of, one of the cameramen, I hope I'm not going to lose his job here, he said, he says, do you know what? He said, I've listened to thousands of managers' interviews. He said, that's the first one I've actually listened to. <laughs> he said, I actually felt I was listening to a proper conversation there. And I think what it is, he's got a, there's, a, there's actually a, quite a strong humility about him. I found um, it's interesting how he's come in having had this. I mean, you imagine being a footballer at Burnley. I mean, look, Burnley's got really good players, they're on good money and all that, but they're not Vincent Company. Mm. And yet he's come in and 
given them, I think, both the feeling that less that he's special, but that they're special. And you talk to some of the players about him and, you know, that I think Sean Dyche did a fantastic job for us and, you know, the players literally would have run through brick walls for him and in Ashley Barnes' case, quite often did. But, you know, company's got that, he's got that aura that I think comes from what he's done, but he seems also massive attention to detail. And interestingly, the other thing about, you know, you talk about captains and building teams. I was really interested when I talked to him about Craig Bellamy, because of course Craig Bellamy's reputation, largely driven by a few very high profile kind of bad boy mm. incidents and so forth, and the press like to get into him and what have you. Um, and he said Craig Bellamy was just absolutely brilliant. Yeah. He, he said he just had a different edge and a relationship with the players that was different. So I think he had that sense of how to build a team, how to how to use his own personality to affect the others, how for them not to feel that they were, you know, going to be in his shadow. For some of them, maybe that'd be a good thing that they were in his shadow. You know, like Mourinho always used to say, I, I do all the high-profile stuff to take the pressure off the players. I never quite knew if that was true or not. But I think, you know, having Vincent Company there. And also the, the other thing that's really interesting is watching him I, where I sit at Burnley is kind of it's I'm, I'm sort of in the middle and I can I'm right behind both benches and I love watching the managers and the coaches during the game and their different styles and their different techniques with the fourth official and all that but what I see in Vincent Company is just always 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 on to the next thing often clapping the players even when it's gone wrong I just notice these little traits in him which I think to do, are to do with this sense of just, you know, constant motivation. And if you listen to the players, he trains them really, really hard. And, you know, massive attention to detail, but not necessarily filling their heads with it all the time. So I think I think you've got a fascinating insight because you've got the political world and you've got a very sort of close affiliation with the sporting world as well, given, like you say, at Burnley now, you've been involved in Lions Tours as, a, as an author as well, the book Winners, which I urge people to, to read as well. Like Massive names there like Floyd Mayweather. I was going to ask you from that book, Winners, what did you, was there anything that you learned from collating all that information about sportsmen? And was there somebody who stood out to you that come on top of that pile? And, and why did they come out on top of that pile for you? There's, there's people who come out on the top of different piles. So, for example, you mentioned Floyd Mayweather. I, I was interviewing people in sport, politics and business and trying to get a sense of if there's anything that they can all three learn from each other. And this may sound obvious, but the, one, the conclusion I reached is that when it comes to the best of winning, in terms of, you know, we can define what winning means, but in terms of having that winning mindset and the ability to organise around winning principles and themes... I felt the best of sport did it best, the best of business did it second best, and the best of politics did it third best. Some exceptions along the way, mm. but in general. Now, that might sound obvious because people say, well, sport's all about winning, but everything's all mm. about winning, ultimately. Yeah. If you don't win in politics, you're never going to achieve much. So I think that because sport is so... You guys, the life that you guys lead, in politics, you don't have that many definitive games that you know the result is yeah. clear even elections aren't always clear whereas you guys you win you lose you draw and then you're on to the next one it's probably a few days later politics very very different but the guy Mayweather was absolutely amazing because I asked every single person I'll ask you this question as well which of these two statements defines you more I love winning or I hate losing <sighs> uh 
I'm thinking about it. My, my first one that came to my head was, was hate losing. Uh, and I'll tell you why. I, I remember like I was doing athletics when I was a kid. And I the thought that someone just beat me blatantly in like a 200 meter race crushed me. I, I I hated it, you know. But yeah, what what did he, what did he say then? Well, he said he was the only, most of the, most of the sports people I asked that question to said I hate losing. Yeah. I'm driven by a fear of failure. Yeah. He said, <laughs> I never ever ever think about losing. Why would I ever do that? Yeah. And I said, well, because people do lose. He said, I never, and I don't know if this is true. He said, I never ever ever think about losing. Do you know what? But that's why he is who he is, I think. Like, Probably. I think, like, he, well, he's never lost, has he, in professional boxing? No, he's never lost a fight. He's lost in his private life. He's lost in life. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, but in his, as a fighter, no, he's never lost. You know, it's interesting to hear that because you think that, like, when a lot of these fighters, they, they say that in the press conferences, you're like, yeah, but it is a possibility. Like, even I think this. I'm like, yeah, but it is a possibility. Of course it is, you know. But they're like, and especially him, he's like, no. Like, what are you on about? Am I going to lose? Like, I'm not even going to prepare for that eventuality, you know. I, I wonder whether that's like a fighting mindset as well because it's probably more primal, you know. But um, maybe, or, and it's also, you see, again, like the, you know, fighters, I can't remember how many, is he 48? Yeah, something like that. Isn't it? Yeah. You know, so they don't have that many. It's not like you guys playing hundreds of rugby matches or footballers or cricketers or whatever. But it's interesting that he said that. You don't know whether, I mean, let's, let's say he had lost the fight along the way. Would he have then thought more about losing? I don't know. Did Muhammad Ali think about losing? Interesting. Um, but but so he stood out in a, in a lot of ways. Interestingly, one of the one of the, the the most surprising conclusions I reached in the book. I was one of the business guys I in, interviewed was John Brown, who used to run BP, the oil company. And he was right towards the end of the process of, of researching and writing the book. And I was telling him a bit about who I'd spoken to and the kind of themes I was pulling together. And I showed it. I had this piece of paper where I had all the different themes, like you know leadership skills, teamship skills, strategy, resilience, crisis management, all the different things that I think you need, communication, that you need to be able to become an effective leader. And I said, I've got, I've got kind of all the names down here of all the people, I've got them all on the thing, and I've ticked them all off against all these different qualities. I said, I haven't found anybody yet who actually ticks every single one. And I ran through what they were, and he said, have you thought about the Queen? <laughs> And I, and so the, I've got the book here. So, so the fi- the final chapter, the last but one chapter is the Queen, a very British winner. And the reason that that worked as a chapter, and, and I think a legitimate sort of conclusion, I'm speaking here as somebody who's not a natural monarchist at all, but during the week that Diana, Princess Diana died, I was very closely involved in the planning of the funeral stuff with the palace. So I got to know a lot of the people in the palace and... I remember one of them saying to me that being thrown together like that, a professional relationship that would normally take years between the new pe- the new team in number 10 and the new palace, and the old palace rather, would take, you know, we, we, would, we were forging those relationships like in days. And so I got to know some of them quite well and they, they spoke to me for, for the background for this chapter. And it was just really interesting to, to go through with them. For example how she got through what she called her anaceribilis and you know when the, the, the all of them virtually uniformly said the low point was actually not when the kids were all getting divorced it was the Windsor Castle fire that was when they felt that she was literally at a very very low ebb and then they had this thing about you know I talk as you know a lot in the book about strategy and they all said look both the queen and prince and prince philip 
hate this sense of having to have a strategy. But they did have a strategy. And their strategy was rooted, there were different parts to it, rooted very much in tradition and all the stuff that you'd expect. But then this whole thing about there was a very deliberate point at which, if you like, they narrowed the team. They decided the, the big focus is going to be Queen, Philip, Charles, the boys. That was pretty much, there was like four that were, you know, really out there as, as, as the big royals and then around them, you know, five rather. And then around them, the others started to play a lesser role. And also the, the sense of reaching a point, back to perseverance, where her simply keeping going through what she, all the stuff she went through, she sort of reached this eventual point of kind of universal respect, even for people like me who weren't monarchists. So that was, um, that was a surprise. That I, didn't, I did not, when I wrote, I've got upstairs, and in fact, I've given it to my son because he helped me on the book. But we, 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 dis, we drafted an outline of the book on a napkin at a place in Scotland over Christmas one year, literally on a napkin with a felt pen. And, you know, the book actually, when it appeared, it had a lot of the names that we'd gone for, it had a lot of the themes that we'd thought of, but there was no mention of the Queen on that napkin. <laughs> yeah. But we ended up with her as the kind of the, the ultimate winner in a way. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, Alistair Campbell. Have you asked yourself that question about, did, did you hate losing or did you like winning? What would you answer? Absolutely hate losing. Really? Absolutely. I actually, if you read my diaries, I didn't enjoy the 97 election night at all. Really? Uh, yeah. I think looking back at it and reading my diary at the time, I think I was probably depressed. Um, and I didn't enjoy it. And uh, I was feeling stressed. I was getting agitated by the amount of time and energy that I felt was needed to be managing all these other people who were getting overexcited. And, um, but the thought of, I think the thought of losing was what drove me to work as hard as I did and to do as much as I did. And, and I think, you, you know, there's the, <laughs> the infamous occasion on the Lions tour when Clive Woodward asked me to, to do a, a talk to the team which got very mixed reviews. Some people, some of them were absolutely furious. Some of them, funnily enough, Stephen Jones and Gareth Jenkins, the Welsh coach, both they was, came in and said, absolutely right what you said there, absolutely right. But there was, it was very, it was one of those moments where Clive really was thinking out of the box. But where it came from, I'll tell you what happened. They lost the first test, right? Do you remember Brian O'Driscoll got spear tackled? Yeah, around. yeah, of course. Danny Grucock got um what he got what's what's the thing when you get reviewed afterwards the sin the, yeah like tmo sin bin was it so, no no we, but it was oh, something yeah, afterwards yeah, you know, disciplinary sort of hearing yeah and yeah. he got and, he, and that was all being reviewed mm. and he got done and of course they lost and anyway i got we, we had to deal with all this stuff after the game and uh the big story was about brian and the you know the the controversy about that got back to the hotel it was pretty late early hours in the morning and Quite a few of the players were up and they're having a drink and some of them were sort of having a bit of a laugh with the fans and in the hotel bar. And I just said to, said to Clive the next morning, I, said, I was really shocked by that. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I don't know if I'd have lost that the first test. I think I'd have just gone away and hidden and really sort of gone deep into myself and sort of what did we do wrong? And I, and I then said to him, I can remember in every election campaign I ever fought, even when we were way ahead, 
I used to force myself to start to get really scared about losing. And that f- use that fear to try to drive me to kind of do other things. And then I gave him a few other examples from other walks of life and the military and stuff like that. And Clive just said, you've got to say this to the players. And I immediately said, are you sure about that? He said, I'm absolutely convinced. He said, he said, they're not listening to me. They're not listening to me. I can tell when I'm doing the talks, they're not always listening to me. And so I did this. I did, so that's what, that was the motivation for this thing. I was in two minds about it, but you know. So what, so what sort of thing did you say then? I basically said that I was, I said that. I said, I actually started, Matt Dawson told me I made the worst possible start to a speech to a room full of rugby players because I started by saying, look, I freely accept compared to you guys, I know absolutely nothing about rugby. Okay. But I do know about campaigns and I do know about setbacks and I do know about this, that and the other. And I said, I'm only here talking to you because I made an observation to Clive that he felt it was worth passing on. And that observation is that you've got to use fear and you've got to use anything that drives you to kind of do better and and I did say I was just you know this all stemmed from me being a little bit shocked when I saw people just kind of being very normal last night and that may be right for some but anyway I then caught I then caught Brad O'Driscoll's uh eye he was just on the on my eye line right and he was kind of going <laughs> mm, strange was, I actually agree with that though as well I mean like what what you're saying like because like if I was in the, I used to like visualize people when I was in the squat rack, because I remember like when I was young being like maybe physically dominated in a game, and I was like, shit, that can never happen again. And that fear of like you know being dominated, like so I I I use that. But like you say maybe no, people fall in different camps. I think the ones that didn't like it were the ones who felt I was saying to them all and to them that I was saying to them you didn't care enough or you didn't try hard enough or whatever. And I wasn't saying that. And I had a lot of respect, by the way, for the ones who literally came up to me straight away. I remember Martin Corrie came up and he said, listen, I want to have a private chat with you. We've got to clear the air. I did not like that one bit. I felt you were attacking our professionalism. Uh, and I said, well, look, I made an observation to Clive. He asked me to talk about it. And it was very, very, it was divisive. There's no doubt about that. Mm. And then, of course, somebody, I've got my suspicions, somebody told the Daily Mail about it. Uh, and of course, they got stuck oh, in God, they'd a love big that, way, yeah. and and then then it just sort of kicked off. And I think that actually, what that whole issue, I really enjoyed the Lions tour, by the way. I really enjoyed being right at the heart of a a kind of elite sporting organisation. I learned a lot. I've written a lot about it in the winner's book, as you know, about you know Humphrey Walters and some of that team stuff, and the way that Clive dealing with different players in different situations and. I learned a lot, but I wouldn't do it again because I think, to be honest, and I warned Clive, I thought this would happen. The press just weren't going to let it, they weren't going to allow it to work in a conventional way. You know, I'll never forget the minute we arrived at New Zealand, first interview I did, and I'd done so much, I knew everything about the players, I knew I'd got to know them all, I'd spent time with them. And the very first interview, off the plane was with Radio New Zealand about something and they were straight into it basically First, one of the first questions was what's what's it like for an unemployed antichrist to end up on a tour like this <laughs> oh, <for goodness. laughs> and, and so that was the New Zealand press and the British press which is and then we had the whole that nonsense about uh, this I don't even remember the thing about Gavin Henson 
being quote set up by me to have his picture taken it was just complete rubbish well it wasn't rubbish in that there was a grain of truth in it but the purpose behind it again was clive Mm. said to me can you make sure that gavin understands that just because i'm not picking him for this test is still a big part of the thing and so we organized a picture that basically showed you know that gavin was still right at the heart of things and but anyway so I, i did enjoy it but there was uh, there was yeah I learned a lot I learned a lot and it's interesting I've stayed in touch with it's mainly the Welsh and the Irish guys oh really yeah I wonder yeah. where that is I don't know whether I think I don't know I think the English guys some of them sort of I liked I really liked Johnny Wilkinson I thought he was an amazing guy I had one of the most amazing conversations I've ever had with anybody about winning uh, and uh, but you know I think one or two of them just there was just a little bit I think to be honest I think it's the whole you know they probably read the Daily Mail to be honest and they thought you know this guy's a bit what's he doing now we, we did a we did a really in-depth interview with Johnny which went down really well as well what did what struck you with Johnny because a lot of listeners have listened they were wow I, d- I knew he was professional but I didn't realise he was that much of a deep thinker what, what, what struck you about Johnny well I'll give you an example we flew out on the day of the 2005, May the 25th. And the reason I can remember that is it's my birthday and it's also Johnny Wilkinson's birthday. Oh, you share birthdays? Oh, right. Yeah. And it was the day of the Liverpool, that amazing comeback by Liverpool in the European Cup final. Oh, back then, yeah. So when we got on the plane, they were losing 3-0, whatever it is, and by the time we were up in the sky, they'd won the European Cup. Amazing. (laughs) wild. Anyway, Dave Reddin, who was the fitness coach, he'd given us this sort of big sheet of paper about how to bet your sleeping strategy and eating strategy for the flight 24 hour stopover in singapore i think it was um so and his first thing was try not to sleep on the first leg of the flight okay drink lots of water have a light meal da, 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 have a main meal sleep whatever it was yeah. anyway we're all up there um you know in business class and I had a little, I had a little, I thought, okay, I'm going to do what, I'm, I'm going to do the kind of thing that he tells me because I hate jet lag. And this is all about avoiding jet lag. So I, I say, I'm going to stay awake for the first, the whole flight. After about an hour and a half, I walk up and down the plane. Virtually everybody's fast asleep. Okay. <laughs> I, I wonder, I, we're in the upper bit. I go downstairs. I'm just having a little wonder. I bump into Johnny Wilkinson downstairs. There's only me and him though. So, <laughs> so and he's, he's kind of, you know. So we had this conversation about, yeah, about winning and about, uh, about fame and about whether your life can be normal once you're very well known and all that sort of stuff. I'll tell you the, the, the one, the, the couple of things that really, really struck with me, stuck with me. The first was, I mean, I talked earlier about Vincent Company and humility. I thought he had an amazing humility. And he said this thing to me. He said, yeah, because, you know, my brother's a player. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, it must be difficult for him that, you know, he's your brother and he's obviously a really good player. But to have you as his brother, he says, yeah, you know what, but I think he's actually probably a better player than I am in some ways. I said, Johnny, what are you talking about? (laughs) you've You've got the best players in the entire UK and Ireland on this plane right now, every single one of which says that you are the best player in the world. Certainly <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a young three. man then still as yeah. well. Yeah. And you're now telling me that actually your brother, who's not on this plane, is a better player. So that was the first thing. <laughs> and the second thing we talked about was was the thing about his his sort of obsessive mindset and his, his need always to be 
And he definitely is a worrier. He's somebody who's mm. always worrying about, you know, things going wrong and so forth. And I said, it must be really hard for kind of... We were talking about relationships, and I was saying that for me, when, you know, when it's full on in a political campaign or something, you've not seen your kids and you're not home and you're bad-tempered when you are and all that, and it's very, very difficult. And he said, yeah, relationships are really difficult. He says, like, you know, uh, like it's sometimes, you're like, you know, I might be having a conversation with my girlfriend on a, on a Tuesday, and she'll say, you know, I was thinking of coming up to Newcastle for the weekend. What do you think? Yeah, that'd be great. And then, because I'm in a Tuesday mode, and then, you know... <laughs> But when I get to the the weekend, I'm in a Friday mode. And, oh no, you know it's like you know, yeah. and, you know. So I just have this sense of somebody utterly, utterly dedicated yeah, to, is. to his to his craft and his and his, and, his, and and such a nice guy. And they were they were they were all. I think a lot of them were quite intrigued about what the hell I was doing there. And and bear in mind, we literally just come out of the 2005 election campaign. So we've you know. I've been kind of doing that at the same time as getting ready for the Lions. So it was all, it was all a bit sort of mad. Um, but I remember him sort of, you know, and he, he said to me, look, I know there's, I, I do understand that there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of interest in Brian because he's the captain. And I know there's going to be a lot of interest in me. I get that. But please, I don't want to, I just want to be treated like all of the other guys. He said, I hate it when I get to places and they put me in the, the front row. I just want to sort of sideline at the back, you know. Yeah. So I, I thought he was an amazing guy. So I, I've kind of gone off on the Lions. Do you want to explain to people who might not know, I'm sure the diehard rugby fans know, but what was your role on the 2005 Lions tour and what did it entail? Well, I was basically, I guess, in charge of communications. Um, and But what happened, it, it sort of evolved because Clive phoned me up. I'd never met Clive Woodward. And I was out, I was out running on the heath near where I, where I live. And uh, the phone went, it's Clive. Hi, hi, I said, we haven't met before, it's Clive Woodward here. Uh, this honestly his first words I wondered if you fancy coming on the Lions tour to New Zealand and I I thought I, I like to sort of get to know people through humour I said Clive I've got to tell you I didn't I've not played since I was 17 <laughs> <laughs> so he says he says no no, no I, was, I was thinking I was thinking more about um, thinking more about advising us on the communications I said well what, why why that he said well I'll tell you what's happened is that I've had a visitation from a lot of the rugby media and they basically say that the last Lions tour, the communications and the media relations were a complete mess. And they need to get it. They needed to get somebody in who knew how to do that stuff. And, and his wife, Jane, had said to him, well, why don't you try Alistair Campbell? Because he's just done that election. And I, I saw him say so. And I said, lit- I think I said, look, Clive, I think this, I think I'll enjoy it. I'm definitely interested, but I'm not sure it's a good idea. You know, I don't think the press are going to like this very much. Anyway, we, it was like the old days in football when managers used to meet at service stations. And uh, we met at the service station on the M1. And um, so we're sitting there having a cup of tea and having a chat. And uh, this guy, who I think worked at the service station, so he comes over and he says, oh, it's amazing to see you two together. Can I get a picture with you? And Clive says, yeah, cool, yeah, sure. And I said, oh, well, hold on a minute, Clive. I'm not sure that's a very good idea. And he goes, uh, then he goes, he says, yeah, that's why I need you on this tour. <laughs> <laughs> Sold. Yeah. So I said, anyway, we agreed to. And what, what evolved over time, because I realised pretty early on, there were, two, there were two press guys with us who were really good at the day-to-day bolt, nuts and bolts. I didn't need to worry about that. And so once I realised that actually the media weren't going to allow me to really to be a conventional communications guy in the conventional sense, it sort of evolved into something different where those... Those players that were interested, 
actually started to kind of use me for the kind of stuff that we're talking about, you know, and mindset and teamship and all. So we just, I just used to, you know, Stephen being, Stephen Jones being one of them, we talked for hours about stuff like that. Um, Donnick O'Callaghan and Paul O'Connell, they're both of whom I've kept in touch with. Um, you know, I, I felt that on that level, I felt I was able to contribute something. But I think on the on the actual, Ronan Agar is another one that I, I still, you know, I sent him a message the other day after his amazing win in, uh, in, in for La Rochelle. And I think that, you know, I, I, I ended up doing something different to what I think Clive had envisaged. Uh, but as I say, I wouldn't do it again because I just think it's... Uh, do you know what was an important moment for me? Because that was the moment I realised I probably couldn't do a normal conventional job in that space again. I can do bits and pieces, I can bob around, but I'd become too sort of controversial and too big a figure in a way to do that sort of job. Thanks so much to Alistair for his time. A really engaging guy and a great talker and there was loads of great takeaways in there. I loved hearing about his work with the Lions. This was in 2005, so slightly before my time, and I know it received mixed reviews, but I could see why they wanted someone like him involved. Sometimes, bringing someone in from the outside is exactly what big organisations need, a different perspective and a fresh pair of eyes. I found it really interesting that we both have similar techniques to deal with stressful situations, doing something physical with our hands and breathing techniques. It just shows that no matter what your role, how high your profile or whatever line of work you're in, everyone has moments in their lives where things can get on top of them. Next week in part two, we talk more about Alice's mental health and the techniques he uses to manage. Until then, thanks for listening. Crowd Network, a place where you belong. <laughs>